Okay. I'll ask you after. Okay. Right, people. Hello. <clears throat> the authorship of Isaiah. Now, in the first part of the book of Isaiah, uh, the part that, uh, that you've read so far, um, quite often the prophecies talk about the future. Uh, so let's say chapter 11. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Uh, or chapter 14. But Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob, will again choose Israel, will set them in their own land, aliens will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Now, it's entirely um, possible, let's assume for the sake of argument, that these prophecies come from the time uh, of the, from the 8th century, a context in which um, Isaiah is declaring that God is going to act uh, in rejection and punishment in, re in relation uh, to Judah, but that that won't be the end of the story. Uh, and at the other side of the um, trouble, there will be restoration. Um, that's characteristic of the prophets, um, almost to a person, maybe to a person. When they talk about God bringing about judgment, then the other side of judgment, there will be restoration. Uh, when you get into the chapters beginning uh, with, Isaiah, with, with Isaiah chapter 40, then uh, you get the prophecy talking about that restoration, but it's talking about that restoration in very different terms. It's not now saying, um, one day God uh, will restore his people, one day God will comfort his people. What Isaiah chapter 40 says is this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. It's not saying one day there will be restoration, there will be comfort. It's saying the, the moment of comfort has come. It's not saying that the other side of um, God's people being um, chastised, God will forgive them, they will have there'll come a time when there's been enough punishment. It's saying there has been enough punishment. The obvious assumption is that the chapter uh, is spoken by somebody who is living at the time uh, of the people who are in the midst of receiving this restoration. Uh, therefore, that the prophecy comes from a period about 540 or so, uh, on the eve of the time when the people of Judea are going to be free to go back to their country, uh, re-establish themselves, knowing that their um, relationship with God has been sorted out. In a way, I don't want or need to say any more uh, about the authorship question than to point out the implications of that. That is, this is not a prophecy that says, in, in, in 150 years' time from Isaiah's day, there will be comfort. It's saying, God is bringing a message of comfort now. Um, the uh, obvious implication is then that the person who is uttering this prophecy is not somebody uh, who was living 150 years before this, but is somebody who's living in, the, in, in about 540 uh, when the Judeans are about to be freed to make it possible for them to go back home. <coughs> the um, oddity, as it might then seem to us, is that this <coughs> prophecy about th this declaration 
um, about God bringing comfort now appears in the context of the same book as some prophecies that earlier on spoke about um, the uh, emerged from a situation that was 150 years previously and that spoke uh, about that restoration as something in the far future. It turns out that the book incorporates material um, from a variety of different periods. Um, to us, that might seem odd. Um, though, what I attempted to suggest to you about the way in which the whole book spells out the implications of God being the Holy One of Israel uh, provides, with part, provides us with part of the rationale for that. That is, that's what it is. The, the focus, the concern of the book isn't merely to tell you about the ministry of one particular prophet called Isaiah. It's to talk about um, the various ways in which over the centuries God was ministering to his people. When it came to be the normal view in the critical world uh, to reckon that there was the work of more than one prophet in this book, there were two sorts of reasons that led to that conviction. The first one was the one I've just stated to you, which was first, as far as we, as far as we know, um, adumbrated uh, by uh, the Jewish scholar Abraham ibn Ezra in the medieval period who saw that this material is addressed, was addressed to Jews in exile and, um, and inferred that it didn't come from the first Isaiah. But he was somebody who was rather on his own in speculating about that. When the, the, that view came to be normal in the 19th century, it tended to get associated um, with the assumption that a prophet in the 8th century couldn't have predicted in the 8th century things that were going to be happening in the 6th century. And as is the case with the question about whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale, it's important that we um, leave that question on one side. Um, open theism is wrong. God can see into the future, and God can announce things about the future. The question isn't whether God can do that, but whether that's what God was doing here. It's what God was certainly doing in the earlier part of the book. Uh, but as I say, what God is doing here isn't talking about the, fu the future, at least not in this particular connection. Um, what God is doing is issuing a message to the present and thus operating in a parallel way to the way that God was operating through the first Isaiah. Through Isaiah ben Amos, God speaks in the present to the community, to the community of the 8th century. Through whoever this person is in the 6th century, God speaks in the present again. God does speak here about the future in the sense that the context is one in which the Persian Emperor Cyrus is rampaging around the Middle East, not to say on the edge of Europe, and nobody knows what's going to happen. Is Babylon going to fall? Are the Babylonian gods going to be able to stop Babylon falling? Are the Babylonian people going to be able to stop Babylon falling? What's going to happen? Uh, and this prophet talks about the future in the sense uh, of declaring that God is behind this Persian king and God is going to give him victory um, over Babylon because that's the way that God is going to bring about the fulfillment of those things that appeared in the first half of the book. This prophet is going out on a limb about how the politics is going to turn out. And I presume that's uh, a major reason why uh, prophecies like this end up in the Bible. When somebody says something's going to happen, then they happen. Then people say, oh, wow, that must have come from God then. Let's put it in the Bible, quick. 
um, and that's what happens with these uh, with these prophecies. The prophecies all do look both back and forward. They look back. They talk about the way in which God has said things and fulfilled them, and that's the basis upon which you can believe that God is going to fulfill these things that the prophet is saying now. Incidentally, that argument only works on the assumption that these prophecies do come from the exile period. Because if you're in the 8th century, you can't say that the earlier prophecies have been fulfilled, because they haven't. But if you're in the 6th century, you can say that the prophecies of 1st Isaiah have been fulfilled, and therefore, you can believe what God is saying now on the basis of God having done the things that God said that he was going to do. But it, it has inhibited evangelicals, and it kind of in a sense rightly, it, is an, it, it has inhibited evangelicals from believing um, that there are several prophets whose work is included in the book of Isaiah, that um, the considerations that convinced the critical world in the 19th century that that was the case was were convictions associated with the belief that um, the prophecy doesn't happen. We put that on one side. We know that God, God can foresee the, question, the future. God can reveal the future. God can do that because it's God who decides the future, which is the argument in Isaiah 40 to 55. The question is, is this an example of God doing that? And the way in which God speaks indicates that it isn't. The other consideration that um, affects uh, conservatives, evangelicals, and makes people hesitant to to reckon that this material didn't come from Isaiah ben Amos, is that uh, when you read the New Testament, you find it referring to Isaiah, uh, and it refers as happily to these chapters, as from Isaiah, um, as to the opening chapters of the book. But I think to, uh, to reckon that the New Testament has thereby fixed the authorship of these chapters is to attempt to make it uh, provide the answers to questions which it isn't asking. When Jesus talks about the sun rising... He is not making a pronouncement uh, about whether the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. He's talking the way that people talk in order to make a point. And when Jesus or the New Testament guys talk about Isaiah says, and then quote from this part of the book, they're not making a pronouncement. They're not saying it was Isaiah ben Amos, not some anonymous guy in the time of the exile, because that wasn't a question they were concerned about. Uh, they are talking about the fact that the statement that, that they're quoting comes from inspired prophecy, and if you want to know which book to uh, find it in, then go and look in the book of Isaiah. So that the fact that the New Testament talks about this part of Isaiah as Isaiah isn't making a pronouncement about authorship, it's making a pronouncement about authority and about location. Chapters 40 to 55 are addressed to people in the exile. When we come to chapters 56 to 66, they are addressed to people after the exile. <coughs> So if you um, accept the logic of reckoning that the chapters addressed to the exile were given in the exile, then the logic will follow that the chapters that are addressed to after the exile, in 1566, uh, were addressed by somebody um, living after the exile. Maybe by the same guy, because as somebody said, but I've, not, I've never been able to find, to find the quotation again, surely if this prophet had said these things about God bringing about the possibility of the Jews being able to return to the land, he or she would have been amongst the people who returned to the land if he or she had had to crawl all the way there on broken glass. And if that's the case, then maybe it's the same prophet who produces the prophecies that come in 56 to 66. I don't have a strong view on that. Uh, what I am clear about is that the prophecies in 40 to 55 were addressed to people in the context of the exile just before the fall of Babylon and that the prophecies in 56 to 66 were addressed to the people back in Palestine after 
the, those prophecies in 40 to 55 have broadly, have broadly come true. And it's possible for, it has become possible for people to return and start rebuilding the temple and that kind of thing. One of the pieces of really good news about this is then that God speaks to people where they are. God did not say to somebody in the 8th century, oh, here's a message to give to people that's not relevant to anybody now, but it's going to be very relevant in 150 years' time. So that the guys in the exile can say, oh, we've got this message from this guy that God gave 150 years ago. Unfortunately, God doesn't speak to us now, but God did speak to somebody 150 years ago, so that's okay, isn't it? I think that's a shame. I mean, if it happened, okay, it happened. But theologically, I'm really glad that God was speaking through somebody anonymously in their situation in exile and bringing God's word to them in the here and now and not merely expecting them to read things that have been, uh, that have been said 150 years previously um, because that would have meant uh, a real pastoral ministry being exercised by God and by his prophet to the people when they were in desperate need of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and Isaiah 40 to 55 does that because it talks about um, what Cyrus is going to do. Uh, and, uh, and in a similar way, uh, first Isaiah and these chapters talk about the end, the day of the Lord and so on, as something that's still coming. That's true, yeah. Um, the, but there's a difference between talking about something that's to do with the practicalities, the down-to-earthness, the concreteness of a situation, and talking about the consummation of God's purpose. Uh, and when the New Testament talks about the coming of Christ, which was something that wasn't going to happen for another 2,000 years, then um, it's talking about that because, it's because the guys in the New Testament are to live... That's really important and relevant to the people uh, living in New Testament times, that they should live in light of the fact that God is going to bring his purpose to consummation like that. And likewise, in the context uh, of Isaiah, the fact that God is going to bring about the day of the Lord, the consummation of his purpose, the coming of the Messiah, if you like, that's really important to people, even if they're living, say, six or eight hundred years before the Messiah comes, the fact that the Messiah is going to come is very significant for them. But that's very different from guys in the eighth, in the eighth century living in light of a message about restoration that's actually irrelevant to them in all its detail, that's only be, going to become relevant uh, when the people to whom it's addressed hear it in 150 years' time. Anybody want to make any other comments about that or ask about that now? Mm-hmm. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's true, yeah. That's true, yeah, yeah. And in a sense, kind of rightly, because as I say, the, a lot of these concerns about, amongst evangelicals uh, had their, have their background in an unbelieving attitude of criticism in the 19th century, uh, where it seemed that one was posed with the choice of either you agree with those critical theories and your serious commitment to the Bible is the word of God collapses, or you oppose those critical theories because you know that the Bible is the word of God. And, and if that's the choice, then I'd rather believe in what Isaiah and that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Um, 
but, but if we can find a way in which um, we can distinguish the kind of um, critical theories that actually are destructive and the kind of critical theories which are illuminating uh, and that, we can, that, that can help us to appreciate Scripture as the Word of God, um, then it will be a good thing. It's it's related. I mean, I think it's 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 always been uh, in in. Uh, as I as I usually put it, when I publish a book nowadays, I want my name on the spine. We, we, again, it's to do with our living in, in a culture in which the individual uh, is, is what counts. Uh, whereas in traditional societies, the instincts work the other way around. So that you, you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want your name on the thing. Fancy pretending that, that something I have got to say was important. It's almost you want to, um, if, if as, as I think is part of what's going on in Isaiah, the, the prophet whose work lies behind 40 to 55 um, was inspired by Isaiah ben Amos. Then the prophet who, wrote, who produced the prophecies in 40 to 55 doesn't want to claim that they were his prophecies because they were, at one level, they're gods. At another level, they were inspired. They're an attempt to say the kind of thing that Isaiah ben Amos would say now. And so um, this prophet want, wants to associate these prophecies with Isaiah ben Amos's, rather than make a great song and dance of them being his to make sure that he gets the royalties uh, or the promotion, the tenure. Um, uh, so the, the whole um, yeah, framework of thinking about these things is different. Um, yeah. Well, let's have two or three minutes uh, in which you talk to each other about what you make of that, uh, what you find troublesome about it, whether you think it's illuminating and whatnot. Talk to one another. One to one another for two, three minutes about that.
Okay. Okay, you're done. I saw that and laughed. Anything anybody else wants to say in light of that? Uh, if not, then um, I'm going to. Uh, we, we'll spend. We'll go back now to that. Um, chunk of Isaiah 1 to 39 that we were looking at earlier this evening, looking more at um, 13 to 39 in various ways. Um, and first I want to talk about prophecy as poetry. So turn right on to more or less the end of the book, because this was an extra page that I put in and I couldn't get it in at the right numbers. So page 148, where it says prophecy as poetry. It's a weird thing that prophets normally talk in poetry. Well, maybe it is. I don't know whether it is or not, but um, um, it's a fact uh, and something that one needs to think about. And maybe one of the reasons why we get into trouble sometimes with the interpretation of prophecy uh, is that we don't take its poetic uh, nature seriously enough. So with regard to one of those chapters from 13 to 39, namely Isaiah 31, uh, let me talk a bit about um, the nature of the prophets uh, as poets. So chapter 31. Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now something you can already see there 
uh, is uh, some of those points there I've made about the form of Hebrew poetry. First, one line is generally the unit of thought. Uh, now, sometimes that means that the verses in English comprise one poetic line, but quite often they don't, and that's not true in chapter 31. You've got, in terms of poetry, three lines in verse 1, and then two in verse 2, and uh, two in verse 3. Um, Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses. That's one line. Who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. That's another line. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. That's another, li another line. There aren't anything that... There aren't the equivalent of verses of the kind that we have in our hymns. Strophes, paragraphs um, in poetry. Well, some people think they are. There are, but I know they're wrong. Um, in other words, you know, be careful because it might be, I mean, 10% of what I say is wrong. The trouble, I, trouble is I don't know which 10%. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I say there aren't strophes in, in the sense of regular paragraph size units uh, in Hebrew poetry. Uh, though there can sometimes be a development between verses and you can see why the English translation has given you three lines in verse 1 because the three lines... Um, lead into one another and comprise uh, one long sentence. But they're still three separate lines. Then you can see how verses, or lines in this case, uh, divide uh, generally into two parts that complement each other in some way, which is what's referred to as parallelism. And you can see how the two halves of those three lines do that. Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In each of those three lines, the two halves um, go together. Uh, sometimes the second half will complete the first half. Uh, sometimes it will repeat it. Sometimes it will intensify it. Uh, sometimes it will make a contrast uh, with the first half. Sometimes it will clarify the first half. When you get halfway through, you wonder... What's that about then? And the second half, if you're really lucky, uh, will uh, will give you the answer to that. Um, alas for those who go down to Egypt for help is a half, and who rely on horses is the second half. Um, we'll come in a minute to the fact that uh, they parts uh, two parts rather than two two halves in the uh, quite often in the sense that. They may not be equal. They quite often uh, are equal. In that sense, they are halves, but quite often they're, une uh, they're unequal. Um, in, um, yeah. Uh, so in, there are various ways of talking about these lines. The way, the way I usually talk about them is then to say uh, that one of these lines that comprises two parts um, is a bicolon or a bicolon. A half line is a colon. We get, it has a colon at the end in, uh, in um, uh, old translations uh, in the Psalms. Uh, a a two-part line is a bicolon or a bicolon. Sometimes you'll get a line with three halves. Well, three parts. Uh, and, uh, and so that's a tricolon. One of the implications of that might be 
that if, the, if a poet um, is writing carefully in this kind of way to make the two halves of lines balance each other, uh, maybe that suggests the poet is composing uh, the line in a conscious sort of way. Uh, I mean, maybe God simply gives in the words and they come out that way, but it looks as if it, there's something more going on by way of deliberate poetic composition. And or maybe if the poet is speaking orally, you can't speak any other than orally. If the poet is um, <laughs> communicating orally, is making up the po- is 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 making the, po- the the issue in the prophecy and hadn't got the words ahead of time, but is um, putting them out there um, as as they are coming. Then maybe it's a bit like the blues, you know, where you repeat, you say the first line of a blues, then you say the sec- then you say the same line again while you're thinking of the thir- of the third line. Um, maybe uh, they, the parallelism gives you thinking time. Um, so you say, alas for those who go down to Egypt for help, and, easy to, and it's easy to say, and who rely on horses, while you're thinking of, and trust in chariots because they are many, and then it's easy to think of, it's easy to say, and in horsemen because they're very strong, while you're thinking up, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel, uh, and then you add to that, or consult the Lord. So maybe it gives you thinking time. Third thing about the poetry is that the order of the words may vary from the order in prose. So the classic example is when it works chiastically. So it works A, B, C, C, B, A. Uh, sometimes. You can not very often tell that from the English, so take my word for it. Something you have to be wary about occasionally is the way in which uh, some words in one colon may apply um, in the other colon, and you have to supply them. They only come once, but you have to supply them in both halves. So, um, in the middle of those lines in verse 1, the word trust um, only comes in the first half, but obviously applies to the second half as well. That that issue didn't arise in the first line, because you've got um, the verb... Uh, go down and then the verb rely in the first in the first line, but in the middle line you've only got the one verb and you have to t- uh, you have to work out. It's easy in this case that the verb in the first half applies in the second half as well. Uh, no, not particularly. No, I'll just see if there's any other examples. Um, I can't see other examples here, but no, but there's no no need for it to be. It could be any part of speech, uh, could um, uh, could could work that way. Fifthly, the verses tend to have a fixed number of of words or a fixed number of import, number of important words. The the prophets are free about this, freer about this than the Psalms, for instance. Uh, most often, you'll get three words in the first half of a line and then three words again uh, in the second half. Um, uh, It's the the rhythm that counts. So prophets are actually rap uh, artists. Because as long as you keep the rhythm going, you're okay. (laughs) It's easier with the Psalms. There's no end to your demands upon me. (laughs) 
I don't think I can do, I can read it in Hebrew, I can do rap, but I can't do both at the same time. Which would you like? <laughs> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Yeah? <laughs> I beg your pardon? That was dope. Dope. <laughs> I, I'm sure I should know what that means, but... Uh... Look it up in Hebrew. <laughs> I wonder if I could do it in Hebrew. No, I couldn't do it in Hebrew. Um, the second most common rhythm, common rhythm uh, is 3-2. That is, you get three important words, three beats, three, three stresses in the first half of the line, uh, and then, but only two stresses in the second half. Uh, and in Psalms, you use that for, for lamenting more than for praising. It's more limping. It keeps bringing you up short. There's some sadness about the very way in which the poetry works. Now, that, that's about poetry, the, the poetry of, the, of the, the prophets or the Psalms at a kind of technical level. Um, but it's maybe not the... Uh, well, it isn't uh, the, in, the most important thing about why the prophets talk in poetry or how, what the effect of that is. So um, three points below that where I put the nature and effect of poetry. Um, the nature of poetry is to be dense. That is, there, there are fewer words. The little words get left out. And so that means that the um, audience that list, that's listening to poetry has to do more work in order to understand what on earth the poet, the prophet, means. Uh, and the result of that is a bit like the result then of Jonah ending with a question. If you're to be able to understand what this prophet has got, is, is on about, you have to listen harder than you have to listen if the person is talking um, in prose. It's more involving. A second thing about poetry is the way it uses imagery. Um, and there are two points about imagery. One is that imagery uh, tells, tells you what ideas feel like. Um, when, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, <coughs> then in a way that doesn't tell you anything that you, couldn't, uh, that, that you couldn't be told by means of ordinary words, by means of systematic theology, conceptual kind of words. But to use an image like I am the good shepherd uh, gets to you reaches the parts that ordinary concepts uh, and, and analyzable concepts don't reach. It tells you what, it tells you what the idea of, God, of caring, I am somebody who cares for you, that's good. I am the good shepherd, that tells you more than saying I am somebody who cares for you. That's one thing about images, but it's not the most important thing. Uh, the more important thing is that images extend your knowledge. Because uh, the, the, you, the, the really important things, not least in talking about God, are things that you can't literally say. There are very few things you can say about God in a literal kind of way. You can say that God exists. You can say that God is holy. But you can't say much beyond that. Uh, so you need images, symbols, metaphors, pictures in order to be able to say things about God. Um, that doesn't mean there's something, as it were, wrong uh, that, uh, with, uh, with 
having to use symbols, images, as if we can't say the truth. Um, because the, the truth is, is actually expressed in a way that it can't otherwise be expressed when you use images, when you use symbols. Imagery makes it possible to see and to say new things. Uh, and the third thing about the nature of poetry is that it uses ambiguity. It teases you in a way that uh, regular prose doesn't, at least as naturally do. And there's a great example in, um, in Isaiah 31, in verse 4. As a lion or a young lion growls over its prey, what's this going to be about, says the, say the people listening? Who's the lion? Is it God? We know God's like a lion. Is God growling over his prey? Keep listening. And when a band of shepherds is called out against it, is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, oh, maybe it is Yahweh. But if Yahweh's the lion, who's the prey? So Yahweh armies will come down to fight upon Mount Zion and upon its hill. Oh dear, are we the prey? Yahweh is the lion. We're the prey. Yahweh's going to eat us up. Like birds hovering overhead. Bad news again. Some of you know that my uh, favorite California band is um, Icy Hawks in L.A., whose um, song that gives them their own name uh, pictures <coughs> these birds hovering over L.A. You know, when the great earthquake has happened or whatever, waiting to eat us up. Oh, thanks. Like birds hovering overhead. That's Yahweh armies. We're just um, the remains of the catastrophe. Uh, we're going to get eaten up. Perhaps it isn't Yahweh, but certainly it's bad news for us. Like birds hovering overhead, so Yahweh armies will protect Jerusalem. Oh, suddenly the picture's got turned on its head. He will protect and deliver it. will spare and rescue it. Yes, we are his prey, but it's okay because the lion looks after his prey. The point about the, the image is not that the lion eats the prey, it's that the lion makes sure that nobody else gets it. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a knack for poetry there. It speaks to my heart. Now, uh, the, there's um, a, um, a kind of teasing process going on in the way in which Isaiah speaks in these two verses in which you don't know how to take it. You don't know whether it's good news or whether it's bad news. Uh, so I'll put it the wrong around. You don't know whether it's bad news or whether it's good news. It starts off looking like bad news, but ends up as good news. Uh, but there's not just a kind of teasing um, communication thing going on there. There's a theological thing going on that relates to where I started really this evening in terms of Yahweh being both the one um, who is committed to faithfulness because of who he is, but also the one who has to summon up his capacity um, to be tough um, because of what's demanded by right and wrong in some situations. Uh, and Yahweh is pulled both ways. Don't think it's simple being God. It's really complicated being God. In relation to, to Judah in Isaiah's day, God has to be committed to chastising, to punishing. But in relation to Judah in any day, God has to be committed to faithfulness. 
and, and um, mercy because of who God is and the kind of commitment God has made. The, the poetry thus expresses that um, in a way that is also expressed in the um, historical realities of Isaiah's day when um, the Assyrians are able almost to conquer Jerusalem, are able to um, conquer the entire land, but they don't manage to conquer Jerusalem, um, as the uh, story tells you in chapters 36 to 39. Which did you read for today? I can't remember whether you read those chapters. Mm -hmm. Did you say, "Mm mm-hmm? Did I hear, "Mm mm-hmm? Yes, you did. I oh, know you did. Well, no, it didn't. No, I didn't tell you to read. Uh, I told you to read the sheet. I didn't tell you to read the chapters, did I? Oh, that was a shame. Are we never going to read those? Oh, I might have to talk about those then. King Sennacherib. Uh, put on a, put, uh, drew up an account um, of his campaigns in Judah as the king of Assyria um, in which he spoke about having shut up uh, the king of Jerusalem um, like a caged bird uh, and exact, that's exactly what he'd done um, he had been able to conquer the rest of the land uh, but the 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 positive and the negative from his point of view nature of what he was able to do to Jerusalem was shut up the king like a caged bird but he didn't manage to open the cage as it were he didn't, manage, he didn't, get, he didn't capture Jerusalem itself um, naturally enough Sennacherib emphasizes the positive aspect to what he was able to do in relation to Jerusalem whereas the story in Isaiah 36 to 39 emphasizes the other side the way in which Sennacherib is convinced that he's going to capture Jerusalem. Um, but he makes the mistake of declaring how he's going to be able to do that and warning the people of Jerusalem not to think that God is going to be able to rescue them. Yahweh hasn't rescued the, the, uh, the people of these other cities. Don't, don't make the mistake of trusting in Yahweh. Well, I mean, how could Yahweh resist the temptation to prove him wrong? Um, and Yahweh does exactly that. So Jerusalem comes to within um, uh, a very uh, narrow margin of being taken by the Assyrians, but doesn't get taken, breathes a sigh of relief. Um, and, and that has a theology expressed in it and lying behind it, the theology that's expressed uh, in chapter 31. Yahweh, as it were, needs to take Jerusalem to get Jerusalem to its knees before Sennacherib, almost uh, to get it defeated. But Yahweh also needs not to let it be defeated in order to demonstrate uh, who he is and to um, keep his commitment to Judah itself.
Uh, okay, back to um, uh, pages 80 to 82. Uh, some things about those chapters, some more things about those chapters that you uh, that you read. Uh, these um, these oracles about the nations. Then uh, the the um, the word for oracle is the Hebrew word masar, uh, which is sometimes translated burden. There is a word masar that means a burden, though um, I. Uh, as it says there, it's the same as the word for a burden. I, I think it's probably a different word. Uh, a massar can be, amongst other things, an imaginative picture or a lament or a poem. In other words, more or less any kind of poetic composition. Um, and so when the NRSV refers these simply to oracles, then um, I think that's fine. Um, does the, the NIV, does the, what does the NIV call them? at the beginning of 13. Anybody? Okay, don't tell me. I don't mind. Yep. An oracle. Does it say then concerning or against? Concerning. Okay, it's the same. Yeah. A prophecy. Okay, that's, yeah. All right, thank you. Uh, why does a Judean prophet speak about the fate of other peoples? Uh, I found it illuminating to, to compare and contrast what Isaiah is doing in relation to these other nations here with what Balaam is doing in relation to Israel back in the book of Numbers. Why should it be that this foreign prophet uh, in the book of Numbers is declaring things about Israel? Well, there are several sorts of reasons um, uh, why that should be so and why a Judean prophet should be declaring things about the nations. One is that declaring Yahweh's words of blessing, in Balaam's case, puts Yahweh's will into effect. When we think about prophecy as predictive, um, we're not wrong, but we miss um, an important aspect of the significance of Yahweh talking about the future, which was implicit in something I was saying earlier on. One of the reasons why Yahweh is able to talk about the future is that Yahweh decides the future. Um, if, you say at the, if you were to say to somebody who was a visitor at the beginning of the class, well, he'll talk for a bit, and then he'll get us talking with each other, and then after a few minutes he'll stop us and he'll talk again, that would be, that would be prediction. But if I say at the beginning of the class, I'm going to talk for a bit, then I'll let you talk to each other, and then I'm going to talk again. I'm not issuing a prediction. I'm declaring an intent. And what God is doing uh, when, in talking about the future, uh, when, if God's talking, usually, <coughs> excuse me, is God, is God is declaring an intent. God is declaring what God is going to do. And the very fact of declaring the intention is what puts the words into effect. They, God's words are powerful words. Um, when God says, uh, I bless you, that makes the blessing happen. When God says, um, I am punishing you, that makes the punishment happen. Words have an effect. They are performative. Words do, 
words don't just inform, they perform. That was true about Balaam's words, it's true about Isaiah's here. Uh, what Isaiah is saying about these nations makes these things happen. Balaam talks about the destiny of Israel, and these prophets talk about the destiny of these other nations, because they're relevant to the, peop- to the, to the person who is speaking. Um, as I say, as far as we know, at least most of these prophets, we've no reason to think that Isaiah went to Babylon, Egypt, Ethiopia, and these various other places. Um, nor, uh, as far as we know, that he shared these prophecies with um, embassies from these other nations in Jerusalem. Something like that may well have happened with the Philistines, but there's, and we've got no basis for universalizing that. The messages are given to the, to the, to the Judean people themselves for the reason I hinted earlier on, of the, because they are the nations that are significant for the Judean people. Somebody in their posting asked the good question, when... I think it was with regard to 24 to 27, when Isaiah talks about the whole world, well, what's he really talking about? Presumably he's not talking about the Eskimos or the the people of Southeast Asia. Um, What's his kind of world view in the sense of vision of the world? Now, he's thinking about the world as a whole. If you ask him, what do you mean? Then he'll be thinking about the nations immediately around, like these nations, and then nations that he vaguely knows about a bit further on. He probably knew about India, for instance. Um, uh, and, and, and so he'll kind of vaguely know that beyond, in Africa and India, and even in Europe, there's a, there's a, there's a bigger world. And so when he talks about all the, um, the far shores, or all the nations, in principle, he's, uh, he can be talking about the whole world. And theologically, the kind of thing he's saying can apply to the whole world. But his particular concern with the nations is the ones that, they, that do impact upon Judah itself. Um, when a prophet talks uh, about the fate of other peoples, uh, it gives you the chance to align your will with Yahweh's will. If you know what, how Yahweh is thinking about something, uh, then, then you can live in light of that. Balaam and his paymaster uh, were, in, were in a position by virtue of God giving Balaam the words that he gave him, uh, not, for instance, to oppose the Israelites, uh, but, to, but to let them pass and let, let God's will to be affected in them. The Israelites are in a position to align their will with Yahweh with regard to these various nations, which includes not relying on them in stupid ways, um, when Yahweh has revealed that, that, that they are not going to succeed in things that they think they're going to try and do. But there's also another side to that, uh, number four on the sheet, that like Balaam's words, these words about the nations often express God's positive purpose uh, for other peoples. Um, that, as far as I can see, it kind of increases, I don't know whether this is, this is significant, but the amount of declaration of positive purpose increases as the uh, chapters unfold. So, as people pointed out in their posting, there's no, there's no very good news for Babylon. There's snippets of good news for the Moabites and the Philistines. Um, there's terrific news for the Egyptians and the Assyrians uh, in the latter part of uh, chapter 19, uh, where there's talk of the way in which Yahweh will be worshipped um, in Egypt. 
um, where the Egyptians uh, will seek God's healing, where God will listen to their supplications and heal them, where there will be this highway from Egypt to Assyria. Um, the Assyrians will come into Egypt. The Egyptians in, will worship with the Assyrians. Israel will be the, thir the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. There's a point about geography um, implicit there, which again you can see if you look at the, at the map, that given the nature of the Fertile Crescent, uh, then Judah and Israel uh, sit in between, Judah and northern Israel, sit in between the great Mesopotamian powers and the great power of the Nile. So that, they should be, that it should be the blessing in the midst of the earth in that sense, um, uh, it re relates to its geographical position. Blessed be Egypt, my people, says Yahweh, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. Note those words. Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands. Israel, my heritage. Well, did it come true, several of you ask? Well, at one level, the answer is, excuse me, who are we sitting here today? I mean, uh, many of us, um, a number of us are Asians, and probably some, some of us are people of African background. Uh, and so we can see ourselves sort of more immediately. Those of you of whom that's true can see yourselves more immediately behind the Assyrians who are Asians and the Egyptians who are Africans. Um, but in a broader sense, it's talking about the world finding its blessing uh, through Israel at its center. Um, and our being here tonight is a fulfillment of that. Um, the uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, God has an easier time fulfilling pro nice prophecies than nasty <laughs> prophecies. Because, as I said already, God doesn't like being nasty. Um, he's, he, 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 perhaps he likes threatening to be nasty. I don't know. But he's certainly good at threatening to be nasty. But he's not very good at actually implementing in all its gory detail uh, the nastiness of the things that he says he's going to do. Um, and that actually relates to, back again to my number, well, it relates to my number three and number four, giving us a chance to align our will with Yahweh's and expressing God's positive purpose for other peoples. Because it's the, and Jonah and the Assyrians get, uh, again provide you with an example. Because Jonah... Uh, is called to go and say to the Ninevites that God is going to do the kind of thing that God says he's going to do about Babylon, with Babylon. But, they, but the object of saying it is in order not to have to do it. Um, uh, and God will always uh, be glad to find the opportunity not to have to do um, the grim things that God threatens to do. There are some similarities then between the way that, I, that Isaiah as a prophet talks and the way that Balaam as a prophet talks about peoples other than one's own people. There are some, some um, contrasts with the Balaam story. Um, Isaiah gives reasons why these nations are going to be put down. Balaam doesn't give any reasons uh, why Israel is going to be blessed. Isaiah's reasons, you might be surprised to notice, are mainly the power and the majesty of the nations. Now, when you're looking at Amos for next for Wednesday, uh, you will see that Amos says some rude things about the nation's crimes. Isaiah doesn't really do that. It's majesty and power that Isaiah talks about. Uh, it's, it's as if, once you are in a position of power, 
it's, it's inevitable that God has to put you down. Partly, no doubt, because you get attached to the majesty, attached to the power. Isaiah's, second, Isaiah's prophecies look beyond the immediate context more than Balaam's do. Uh, Isaiah talks uh, about the day of Yahweh, um, and I'll come back and say more about that in a minute. Um, uh, thirdly, uh, it's worth noting that Isaiah's prophecies don't relate so much to Judah's enemies. These aren't, if anything, it's the opposite of the case in these chapters. That is, Isaiah isn't talking about Judah's enemies. Isaiah is talking about Judah's potential allies for the most part. So it's not that he's bringing a message of judgment so that the Judeans will all say, oh great! He's bringing a message of judgment as a result of which the Judeans will say, oh no! They're our allies. They're the people who could have been helps to us. Fourthly, Isaiah's prophecies are subtle rather than straightforward. Um, and fifthly, they are uh, subordinate, subordinate to his agenda. That is, I mean, God's agenda as well. It's an agenda that's made clear in that passage of, of poetry that I was talking about just now. Alas for those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Help, rely, trust. Who's supposed to be the subject of the verb help or the object of the verbs rely and trust? The answer is Yahweh is supposed to be. Um, and what the Israelites are doing in relation to Egypt as the background to chapter 31, uh, is what they can be doing to, to most of those other peoples who are mentioned in chapters 13 to 23. The key um, challenge uh, from God to people in Isaiah's day is, are you going to trust in Yahweh? Uh, it goes back to that lovely play on words back in chapter 7. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. The key spiritual and political issue uh, in Isaiah's ministry is trust. Uh, and the key temptation that the nation, that the people are always in, is to trust in anything apart from Yahweh. Uh, and so these poems uh, in chapters 13 to 23 about other nations are part of Isaiah working out uh, the ministry that he's given to push the Judean people not to trust uh, in other nations, but to trust in Yahweh. And one of the bases for doing that is the fact that it won't work uh, if you trust in these other peoples. Um, 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 um. Jump on to page 96. Which is kind of my answer to the question, what of these, the question that you were um, asked to think about in terms of what these chapters have got to say to us. So the top of page 96, uh, it refers to Isaiah 1 to 39, and then Amos and Micah and Joel that we won't deal with obviously today. The Old Testament, it says at the top, is designed to teach, correct, and train us, according to Timothy. 
And I assume it does that by showing us how God is involved with Israel and with the world, because that will show us how God is involved with us. In other words, I am radically undispensationalist. Dispensationalists are people who say, well, that was how God dealt with people then, but he doesn't deal with people, God doesn't deal with people that way now. Um, I suggested that 2 Timothy implies the, opposite, implies the opposite. So Isaiah 1 to 39 tells us how to think about the nations. The great power is Assyria. Modern equivalents are presumably Spain, Britain, and the USA. What Isaiah 1 to 39 says is that the great power is destined to be put down. And Isaiah says that, says that that will happen in order to make clear that it's not of ultimate significance. Of course, if it managed to stay in submission to God, it might be able to stay in power. So there's a vision here for the church to share with the nation and a basis for prayer. Second in Isaiah 1 there's good news for the victim of the great nation. Because the victims of the great nation can be sure that the superpower won't stay in power forever. The small nations today might be Cuba, Iraq, Nicaragua, Uganda. The smaller powers in Isaiah are people such as Babylon and Moab and Edom and Philistia who would like to get independent of Assyria and to topple Assyria. The trouble is that they're inclined to um, think that they'll be able to do that for themselves by working together. In effect, they want to make the same mistake as Assyria did. Faced with all this, Judah is challenged not to fall into the, into the other smaller nations' way of thinking. They mustn't think that their own destiny lies in playing for their safety, in planning for their safety. The church has to see itself as Judah and ask what, in, what it trusts in for its destiny in the world. Uh, there's a, a paper of mine called The Superpower in the Old Testament that you can find on my webpage. There's um, a couple of very interesting books by, this, by a guy called Stephen Kyler, 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 called God's Judgment, and also This Rebellious House, American History and the Truth of Christianity. And one that I've just read, that I read sitting um, on the beach at Malibu on Saturday, What a Horrible Life I Have, um, called <laughs> Evangelicals and Empire. Um, which um, takes up the same thing. Um, uh, it's by uh, Bruce Ellis Benson, or it's edited by uh, Benson and Heltzel, H-E-L-T-Z-E-L. -E it's called Evangelicals and Empire. Um, and its theme, it starts from the kind of ambivalence uh, that there is about seeing the U.S. as an empire. Some people don't mind doing that. Um, some people uh, feel a bit embarrassed about it, quite rightly. Um, and, but, but once you start looking at it within that, within that framework, uh, well, how, where you need to go next um, in, uh, in thinking about it. And it seems to me that the kind of things that Isaiah has got to say about superpower are very significant for us in thinking about that question. Uh, it's, it says on the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the in the syllabus. Um, 
finally, but sorry this is dodging around from page to page tonight. I don't know why that is. But somehow it is. Uh, page 81. Two questions that um, came up in the postings that by some miracle there is a page that gives you the answer to. First, the day of the Lord. Um, or the question, in some, for some people, the form of the question in the postings is, is Isaiah talking about something, in what sense is he talking about his own day? In what sense is he talking about something that is about the, the end? Um, Since before Isaiah's time, Israel had looked forward to a day when its enemies would be punished and when Israel itself would enter into God's fullest blessing. Amos warns you about having hopes like that. Isaiah views the downfall of Babylon as this day of Yahweh actually happening before people's eyes. So in that sense, this day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, isn't the final judgment, but it's the moment when God's ultimate purpose receives one of its periodic partial fulfillments in history as pride is put down and, and as the oppressed are delivered. When, when Jerusalem falls in 587, Lamentations says that the day of the Lord has arrived. When a, a great act of judgment or a blessing happens, it's like uh, a partial embodiment of that final completion of God's purpose. So a pattern characteristic of biblical prophecy appears here. Biblical prophecy speaks as if the end of the world is imminent. What fulfills such prophecies is not, is not the actual end, but a particular historical experience of God's ultimate purpose, receiving a fulfillment in time. There may be a further significance in the prominence given to Babylon's downfall here. Babylon was to become the symbol of a nation set over against God, as it is in Revelation. Perhaps it is already becoming that. And the Babylon whose fall is described here isn't merely the historical Babylon, Israel's conqueror, but also the symbolic Babylon. The fall of Babylon signifies the dethroning of every, of every power opposed to God. So if you feel sorry about Babylon, that might help you a bit. Uh, I can skip the next paragraph, which is about Yahweh armies that I've talked about, and go on to the fall of Lucifer. Isaiah 13 to 14 also taunts the king of Babylon in a funeral dirge sung for a king who is at present very much alive. Uh, you'll read Amos's funeral dirge on Israel uh, for Wednesday when it thinks it is pretty much alive. It's pretty scary when you hear a funeral dirge and you're alive. Isaiah imagines Israel relieved of oppression and in a position to exult over God's judgment on wickedness and Isaiah pictures that event as the fall of somebody who had tried to make himself into God. And in giving that picture, Isaiah utilizes motifs that his audience would recognize came from foreign myths. He talks about the morning star, the sun of dawn. In chapter 14, verse uh, 12. Uh, and in talking that way, Isaiah takes up the titles of Canaanite gods, Babylonian and Canaanite myths, told of gods who tried to take over the power of the top god. And what Isaiah does 
is use those stories that were familiar from Babylonian and Canaanite backgrounds and takes them as parables of the kind of thing that the Babylonian king is trying to do. That is, as the um, emperor of the, of the superpower, the Babylonian king um, is, is reckoning to take godlike authority over the whole world. And what Isaiah says um, is that he will collapse as readily as Venus, the morning star does. Uh, apparently, if you lived in a part of the world where you can see stars, where, of course, we don't, um, Venus the mo comes up as the morning star just before the dawn. And you, uh, and you think, oh, that's going to be a really impressive star, but then the sun comes up, and so Venus disappears. Uh, and so that became, given that in Babylonian kind of religion, uh, what's going on amongst the stars is what's going on uh, amongst the gods um, and also is something that you can use to interpret what's going on in the world. Um, that becomes a, a myth in Babylon and in Canaanite myth about uh, gods that try to take over the power of the highest god but were then eclipsed, as it were, by the real highest god. What Isaiah then does is take that myth and use it to describe what's going to be, what's going, to be going on in history because the Babylonian king is behaving like uh, that god in that myth and the Babylonian king uh, is going to collapse just in the same way as the morning star does. Now what then happens is that the phrase morning star or day star in the NOSV is translated Lucifer uh, in the King James Bible. That's where Lucifer comes from. Lucifer literally means uh, light carrier. Etymologically means light carrier. And so this passage in Isaiah 14 and a similar passage in Ezekiel uh, came to be understood as an account of the fall of Satan. Um, the funny thing, the irony is, that in the myths that Isaiah is using, that is the kind of thing it's about. But the Bible uh, uses the story to describe something that's going to happen in history. It's in the Canaanite Babylonian myth that this is a story of the fall of Satan. Within the Bible is the story of the fall of the king of Babylon. Uh, then, as I say, Ezekiel takes up the same myth in order to apply it, um, to take it, uh, make it a description of the fall of the king of Tyre. So this isn't the, an account of the fall of Satan in the Bible. Uh, there is no account of the fall of Satan in the Bible. But, of course, we want to know about the fall of Satan. And so when the Bible doesn't tell us things that we want to know, we have to keep hitting it uh, until it tells us. Um, and that's uh, how people got the fall of Satan out of Isaiah chapter 14. I'll see you on Wednesday. How does that help?